Job 38 is where we turn again this morning. Job 38 is our Lord himself responding to Job's statements and accusations and questions and claims and challenges against the Lord. And God answers in a godlike way, a godlike way in that he doesn't answer directly the questions, the challenges, the the things that, that Job has done, the demands even that Job has placed for either declare me innocent or declare me guilty, but speak, Lord. I, all I know is that I'm suffering and people around me and I myself think I'm suffering because I'm a sinner. I know I'm not a sinner, but they do. Other people think I'm a sinner. And yet you know I am your person. I'm your man. I fear you. I've turned away from you. I'm blameless and upright. And he's extolled that all along the, all along the way. We'll see that, that it has come to the point where Job has no questions about his own integrity, about his own blamelessness, about his own justice, but he has become to question God's justice, God's blamelessness, God's awareness of all things that are going on. Somehow God is, he's, he's absent, he's mistaken in these different uh, aspects of justice, of righteous, our suffering and the wicked uh, prevail, and how is this even just? How is this, how does God let this happen? Well, God and his answer here in chapters 38 to 41, God does not answer tit for tat. He doesn't answer, you know, okay, Job, you said this. I'm going to say this and we'll come to some resolution. No, he, God, magnifies, puts on bold display as much as we like to put beautiful things on display, right? Beautiful flowers or adornment or whatever it is. God is highlighting the foolishness of man's wisdom. Just the utter vanity of it. You don't know anything, Job, anything of, of worthwhile. You, you know nothing unless I tell you about it. You can't discover these things. Have you, do you know about this? Do you know where this is? Have you ever been over here? And all these questions that God is asking, remember we looked at last time, anywhere from 60, what did we say, 67 to 84 different questions, depending on how you break up the sentences and so forth. Uh, these different English translations have anywhere from 67 to 84 questions in chapters 38, 40, 39, 40, and 41. And these questions, I mean, God could have come right out and said, I'm God here, I'm the ruler, I'm authority, I'm sovereign, I know everything, I just, you get down on your knees, Joe. Instead, God, and this is helpful for us too, it's not like, hey, God did it right. We can learn from God because he always does what is right. He's asking questions not to harden the will, which would be, you know, I'm God, which God does other cases too. Think of the Ten Commandments. Uh, but in this case, God is asking questions to prick the conscience of Job, to bring him to realize, to engage with these ideas instead of just recognizing, whoa, and, and Job's, Job's, uh, Defenses, I suppose, were to rise up. No, God is tearing down his defenses, saying, you don't know anything of what I know. How about if you just zip it? How about if you just listen? How about if you just let me be God? Because I know a whole lot better than you. I know where things are. I know what, how to do things. I know what to do. I know when to do it. I know why to do it. I know how to do it. And by the way, I can do it. And I am doing it. And Job, you, you don't have it. And so God is asking these questions. As I mentioned last time, not to humiliate, not to just show the, the utter vanity of Job personally, but to humble him, get him off of the high horse, his, his pedestal of righteousness, and let God himself be there. God is asking these questions to humble Job. 
and even to invite him to discovery. There's so many things that God mentions in these chapters which are extraordinary. Now, we, through our scientific enterprises through the centuries, have have really probed a lot of these things because God has probed our thinking on so many things. Water and 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 water really plays a big part in these in this chapter 38, or in the the movement of the of the stars, the constellations, the ordering of the of the water, the seas, and the oceans, and so forth. These are prompting our desire to go out and explore and investigate these things. Why? Because God made them, and he made them for his glory, and he takes attention to them. He wants us to give attention to them, what we would call natural theology, looking and evaluating and saying, wow, looking, observing, and reflecting on what God created in a flower, in a tree, in a snowflake, in a mountain, in a solar system, in a cosmos, and say, wow, that, that, hmm, that couldn't just happen. No amount of time, no amount of, of uh, matter can ever create the intricate structures that we see around the world. What ultimately God is de- demonstrating here in chapters 38 to 42, the restoration of Job, which we look forward to getting to at some point, is God is proving Satan wrong. Remember way back at the beginning, Satan said, the only reason that Job worships you, Yahweh, whatever your name is, is because you gave him so much stuff and you put a hedge about him and protected him. And the only reason Job worships you is because you paid him off. You bought him off. You have to buy your father because you, Yahweh, are not worthy of anything. You're not worthy of worship. So ultimately, this isn't about Job, is it? This is about God. This is about the worship of God. Is God worthy of worship and praise and life, whether God gives or takes away, is he worthy of that? Job said that at the beginning, chapters 1 and 2, but then he fell away. He was he was taken with, with all the suffering, all the distress that came upon him, never despaired of life to the point of, of, of taking measure, measures to end his life, but always would say, oh, I look forward to Sheol because that's when I'm going to have rest that God won't see me in Sheol. He'll get his, take his gaze away from me, so he won't pick on me all the time. God is going to ask him about that especially. Hey, you, do you even know what you're talking about when you talk about Sheol? Do you really have any clue what you are discussing and saying so uh, so profoundly? Well, we looked last time at chapter 38, verses 1 through 7, I believe it was. And let me just read that to help us look at it, but then we'll look further as we get into the rest of this this text. Rudely interrupting myself, I'm sorry. Let me give you the structure of this chapter, these chapters first, just to help you remember. In chapters 38 and 39, God is highlighting his omniscience. He knows everything, every possible thing God knows. But then, can he do anything about it? Yes, he can do, because he has all power. He knows everything, ins and outs, ups and downs, intricacies, everything. And he's able to not just create it, but to uphold it, and by the way, to remove it. Everything belongs to God. It's his. And we'll see that as we conclude about how God will wrap up this existing creation and bring a new heavens and new earth. But God knows everything. He's all powerful. In these chapters of uh, 38 to 41, he asks all kinds of questions. Remember the questions that start with can you, who has, where is, when, have you ever, what, from whose, from whose hand, do you know, will you, is it by you that these things happen? Is it at your command that you do that these things happen? So all kinds of questions. And he's talking to Job, specifically. There's some argumentation about that, that God is refuting Elihu. I don't think that's the case. He's talking to Job, specifically. So in chapter 38, there are four, excuse me, three, I should count properly, three different main ideas here that God is saying, I know about these things. Remember, we're talking in the omniscience section. God knows about the majestic structure of the physical world. He knows about the extreme scope, the heights and the depths and the ins and outs of the, the, uh, the physical world. 
and he precisely manages or he has the precise management of the creation. We looked at the beginning of this, the majestic structure of this physical world that we will see. We'll pick that, pick that up here in the text. But again, turning to the text, chapter 38, verse 1. Then Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you make me know. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you know understanding, who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? That's as far as we got last time. Again, God's questions to him. You are one who darkens counsel. You're, you're saying things that you ought not be speaking about me. Now, in the back of your mind, and I've highlighted it before, there's a statement we have to reconcile with these things when God refutes or, or corrects, rebukes the friends, Eliphaz and his two friends, you have not spoken rightly about me as my servant Job has. God says it twice in chapter 42. Job has said things right about me. Well, he has said things right about me, uh, about God, and he said some things that darken counsel, right, that are not, that are words without knowledge. Job, you just don't know what you're talking about. And so to reconcile those two statements that God does endorse Job's statements, with also his challenge, and he mentions it again in chapter 40, that, um, yeah, we'll look at that eventually. When God corrects a specific thing, what is, what is Job doing in his statements? We have to reconcile those two things, and in one sense, we'll explain it more fully later when we get to that text in chapter 42, but yes, there are things that Job did wrong. There are things that Job said wrong. There are things that Job said rightly, but when Job confessed in chapter 42 that God does all things rightly, that he spoke out of turn, that he spoke not because he was willfully ignorant, not because he was deliberately you know, high-handed. God, you, he, he just didn't know. He said, God, prove me wrong. Help me understand these things. From my perspective, this is what I see. I don't know if I see it rightly, so God, come down and answer me. Help me understand these things. And so that kind of an attitude of humility, as James 1 says, if anyone you, if any of you lacks wisdom, well, you're out of luck. Sorry. You just, you, you got the short end of the stick. No, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And God so freely gives wisdom. That's what we see here going on in chapters 38 to 41 and, and then to 42, that Job, he spoke according to the knowledge he had, but he, he wasn't blaspheming God, which what Job accuses friends of doing. Anyway, we looked at all these things, recognizing, oh, another aspect of that is that when, you know, when forgiveness happens, when God does forgive, does he kind of, you know, all that, that record of wrongs that we had done, does he kind of just fold up and put it, put it in his pocket in case he needs to bring that out again to remind us of our sin? No, he takes that, he blots it out, he separates it as far as the east is from the west. There's no recollection of it. So how can we understand that in relation to Job's commendation in chapter 42, that you've not spoken of me rightly as my servant Job has, that confession of faith that Job had in chapter 42 canceled out, if you don't mind, the words of offense, these words of darkening counsel by words without knowledge. God forgave Job. And how did that even happen? Well, do you remember chapter 1? How in the world did Job relate to God? And how did he encourage his children, his 10 children, to relate to God? Through sacrifice. He offered sacrifice. If perhaps my children have cursed God in their hearts, he offered sacrifice. So there's, there's not just, well, God can forgive. No, there's a sacrifice that needs to be made. And even for Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar to be reconciled to God, hey, you go offer some sacrifices. You need to be cleansed from your sin. 
so all this is going on as we as we come to this. It ought to be kind of percolating and floating through your mind as we consider all these things. We looked at the foundations of the earth in chapters chapter 38, 4 through 7, the foundation of the earth. I'm not going to rehash all this thing. Uh, God says, look, I was there. You weren't there. I didn't see. Where, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? You weren't there. And by the way, if you think my world is wrong and kind of unjust and kind of unhinged, let me tell you, when I made it, the morning stars sang together. All the sons of God shouted for joy. They gave praise because what I made was good. It was very good. But let me tell you what happened. He doesn't identify here. You happened. Adam and Eve, you sinned against me. And we've seen Adam referenced a few times in this, in this text of, of chapter, of Job. God made everything good and he managed everything good. He, well, he, he shows that he is over all things. He's powerful. He knows everything. And you ought to, Job, rejoice in my creation, just like the angels rejoiced when it was first made. We move on, move forward, beginning at verse 8. Moving from the foundations of the earth, not just of the globe, the earth, but of, I think, of the land masses on the earth when God set those down. But then, hey, how can you have land masses with all this water? I mean, we have so much water on this earth. I forget the percentage, just a lot of water on the face of the earth. But verse 8 says, who enclosed the sea with doors? When bursting forth, it went out from the womb. When I made a cloud its garment and dense gloom its swaddling band. And I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors. And I said, thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. Who was it? Oh, it was you, Job. I didn't realize it was you who did all these things. And of course, no. And, and God is not using a, a mocking, scornful tone as he's talking to Job. We don't, and when we have the text, we don't have the emojis or, or you know, the, a video to say what kind of attitude. Was he God talking in kind of a sarcastic tone or a serious tone or what was going on? I don't know. But here here we see God is, is saying, who did it? Were you, were you the one that did that? Because I'm confused. No, God is not confused. I did it, he says. In fact, that's the answer to the question. It's not, I don't know. 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 No, it's, you know, Lord, or you did, Lord, or you're that person, Lord, or you can do all these things, Lord. It's giving praise back to him, showing the the shortcomings of Job and all of us by extension, and showing the sufficiency of God. Did you notice as we read those verses how much, or or the image that is presented in these verses is the image of a newborn baby, a baby child, and a newborn and even getting into a toddler time. God is the one who manages, he was the one who was the delivery nurse or the, the, the uh, midwife to bring the sea. And they, whoa, the sea, the whole sea? God is able to do that? Yes. Who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? Here's this birth process. The baby's there. The sea is here. But he's the one who said, okay, hold it. He enclosed that sea with doors. He says, this is, this is how we're going to do this thing. You're not in charge. And by the way, for all of our uh, new or, or expecting mothers, um, the baby's not in charge. Just understand that. Baby's not in charge. We're, we're, it's the mother, it's the father. And as God who did it with the sea, by the way, he enclosed the sea with doors. He made a cloud as garment. So he not just said, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. This is where we're going to do it. This is what you're going to wear. Remember in John 21, when Jesus was talking about Peter's death, that, you know, someday you're going to be clothed with garments you didn't want and being led to someplace you didn't want to go. Well, that's what children do. That's what you do with babes. And 
Peter was going to have that happen at the end of his life. He was going to be executed, not because he wanted to, but because he, he was being forced uh, to become a martyr for Christ. But God is the one who brings this sea into existence and then contains it. And from our perspective, I don't know if you all like to go to the beach, or you know, especially to the sea, the ocean, and see these waves, especially during a storm. These waves just seem like they're going to come and get you. They're going to, how, how is God stopping the sea from coming forward? How is God even, as somebody mentioned last Sunday, about God uses the, he makes a door, right? He says, I enclose the sea with doors. And again, in verse 10, he says, I set a bolt in doors. Well, what are those doors? You know, if you went to a beach and you looked at the ground, you see, you know, these concrete and bunkers. That's what we do, right? When we are trying to preserve a beach or make something where we get concrete down there. How does God do it? Sand. Sand, right? Isn't that the thing? God put, it's sand. It's a sand barrier. And we think, well, that can't last very long, right? Remember Jesus' parable in Matthew 7? The man who built a house on the, on the sand didn't last very long. But God does it. Does it all over the world. Every day. Is God powerful? Can he do these things? Can he enclose the sea with doors? It's bursting forth. It's ready to do a thing. And he says, hold it just a minute. He made a cloud, so he, he wrapped it in swaddling cloths, put a diaper on it if you don't mind. He said, I'm going to take care of you. You are my sea. You are my worker in this whole world. And so much power is in the movement of you know, the tides, of the waves, just so much power, so much uh, volume, so much is in those seas. And yet God says, no, I placed boundaries on it, verse 10. I set a bolt and doors, not to keep it in like a prison, but to keep it out like bars and gates on a, on a city or a door, uh, a, a house rather. And so he said, this far, verse 10, verse 11 rather, thus far you shall come, but no farther. Here shall your proud waves stop. Proud waves has to do with the height. It's not so much an attitude of pride, although see, if you personify it a little bit, you could have aspects of pride. But as we go through the last word of Elihu back in, in uh, chapter 24, chapter, excuse me, 37, verse 24, Therefore, men might fear him. He does not regard any who are wise of heart. And that has to do with pride. It has to do with arrogance. And God does not regard. He doesn't look on those who've got it all figured out. I know how God's going to do these things. And that's basically Eliphaz and Zophar and Bill. God's going to do it this way because that's what we say. God is going to suffer or cause suffering because of this thing. And God will cause prosperity if you do this thing. We've got God figured out. And no, he does not regard any who have got had it have it all figured out, who are too smart for their own estimation, who know things beyond their intelligence kind of thing. No, humility is what God is looking for. And so pride, even in the course of, in the picture rather, of the, of the sea, God says there's a limit to the pride, a limit to the exaltation, the glory of self. No, thus far you should come and no farther. And so he is able to do these things. He is able to uh, affect the, the structure of the physical world, even the boundaries of the sea, the, the movement of the sea. So much in Scripture we see the sea representing disorder and chaos and even death, the death of sea, uh, the sea that causes death. And yet God has put boundaries, placed boundaries upon these things. In other words, the accusation that Job had, God, you're not dealing with evil. You're not treating us wisely or rightly. What does he do with the sea every day? He contains it. He contains sea as a picture of evil every day. He has marked it. There are no, one person said it, there are no belligerent or warring cosmic forces beyond Yahweh's authority. 
And you think, well, what about Satan, right? What about Satan? Isn't he like God's equal? There's God and there's Satan and they're equal. No. Are you kidding me? There's God, Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit, and everything else, Satan included, over here, categorically creation, not creator. So how can we ever say, oh, the creation is equal to the creator? No. The sea is not equal to the creator. Satan is not equal. He is, as uh, I always think, I always misremember. I think it was Luther who said, Satan or the devil is God's devil. Satan, the devil, is God's devil. In other words, God uses, not responsible for Satan's activities, but he uses Satan's activity to promote God's own purposes. God uses the sea to advance his own purposes. And so we see that God is, is celebrating the foundations of the earth. I set those things. I know all about the foundations. I set the boundaries of the sea. And next he talks about the rising of the sun, the majestic, wonderful structure of the physical world. And here in verse 12 and following, have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place that it might seize the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and they stand forth like clothing. From the wicked, their light is withheld and the arm raised high is broken. Have you ever in your life, have you ever even thought about it? Is it something that you consider doing? You, you talk all about the ordering of the universe and say that I'm not doing it well or wisely. Well, what about you? Can you do these things? Have you ever in your life, even just once, maybe on your birthday or something, do you ever feel that you had the authority to do these things from all your days at any time at all in your life? Have you ever done this? Commanded the morning. Say, son, get up here. I mean, that's what basically you're doing. It's saying, it's it's calling the sun. Just as you saw the picture of the newborn back in reference to the sea, this is kind of like God is treating the sun like a child. Child, it's time to wake up. And then, child, it's time to go to bed. I mean, we do that with children, not so much our older children, because it gets kind of more complicated. But our younger children, we, we say, wake up, go to bed. And God does that with the sun. Can you imagine? Have you ever done that? No, you haven't done that. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and cause the dawn to know its place. Get up out of your bed. Now, from our perspective, well, from our 21st century enlightened perspective, we know that the sun is not, the sun is moving, yes, but in relation to the earth, it's the earth moving, right? It's the earth moving around the sun. But from our just stationary perspective here, we saw, maybe some of y'all saw, the sun rise in the east, and we can track its movement across the sky, and then we see it go down in the west. And you think, well, from our perspective, the sun came out of its chamber. This is what Psalm 19 celebrates. The sun came out of its chamber as a bride, you know, adorned for the, for the groom, or bride, bridegroom, adorned for the wife, and ready to run its course. And we saw that sun move across, and now it's gone down, it's gone to its nightly chamber, but then out comes the darkness, and God brings the darkness out. And from our perspective right here, we can see that from our astronomical perspective, we know that other things are going on. God is not limited. He, he knows. He knows what he's talking. He put the thing up there, right? The sun, the moon, all these things. But he is the one who commands the morning. It's sun. It's time for morning. Sun, get up there. And he also puts it to bed. And he is, and he talked about this a little bit later, verse 20, 19 and following, we'll get to it in just a moment. But he is the one who treats the sun like a child and says, look, have you ever done that? Do you have authority to do this? You, you had all these oxen and sheep and camels. And, I mean, you could lead them and draw them out. You had 10 children. Job, you know how to do these things. And yet the sun, 
Have you ever thought about exercising your vast authority over the sun? Oh, you can't, can you? Let me tell you, I can do it. I have done it. You ought to trust me. You ought to fear me. Notice even in the context of the sun, verse 13 says, that it might seize the ends of the earth and the wicked to be shaken out of it. What in the world is God talking about? And it goes on and talks about the wicked in verse 15. The, the wicked, from the wicked, their light is withheld. In other words, the light of the wicked is withheld from them. The light, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But he says, even similar to the connotation or context of the sea, that God limits the evil of the sea, so God also, by the rising of the sun, puts a limit or a lid on evil doing. I didn't get the statistics, but you know, most of, most of crime happens at night. It just happens under cover of darkness. It happens when just people aren't out or, or people aren't home or people are home, but they're not in the, you know, they're in vulnerable positions and so forth. But when God brings up the sun, automatically, every day, he puts a limit on sin and evil and wickedness because the sun rose. Wow, we should have thought of that. Well, we do think of that, right? We have lights. We have security lights. We have all these because light dispels darkness. It dispels evil. And we can, well, God does that every day. It's not like we taught God anything. He taught us that light, it's like he takes a, a, a tablecloth, he takes the ends of the earth, and he shakes it just like this. And he gets all the wicked. All the, all the wicked is shaken out of it because of God's light. It has changed, verse 14, like clay under the seal, and they stand forth like clothing. Not sure exactly. There's different ideas. What is God talking about here? Clay under a seal. You remember, they didn't have, in that day, these, these nice... Uh, I guess two different things. They didn't have these these um, envelopes where you could put a, a letter in and, and lick it or, or pull the thing off and, and it seals. They used a, a seal, a, a clay, a little bit of clay. They rolled up the thing, put a little bit of clay, and then put their signet ring right down into it to show this is from me. Or it also shows this hasn't been tampered with. Now, we can see that in our modern envelopes and stuff. But they would put their seal right down there and said, this is from me, hasn't been tampered with, hasn't been opened. By the way, do you remember in Revelation 5, who's worthy to open the seals? There are seven, let me get the numbers right, there we go, seven seals on this wonderful scroll. Who's worthy? God himself. The Lord, the Lamb, is worthy to open these seals, and he breaks the seals one by one. And we see how that worked beginning in, in Revelation 6. The seals emphasize who wrote it, who's it, who's, who's, it uh, who's the author, who's the sender, but also shows it hasn't been tampered with. Could be that what that's what he's talking about. Could be that just the 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 image when God's sun comes up, whereas it used to be formless and dark, and we couldn't really even tell what's going on uh, in the world. It is dark. We can't tell who our neighbor is, where the trees are. We just trip over all kinds of things. But when the sun comes up, we see definition. We see color. We see three dimensional things, and that could be what's going on here in verse fourteen. It's changed like clay into the seal. Uh, just to get a lump of clay, kind of form it, fashion it a little bit. But then when you put the seal on it, oh, there's beauty, there's definition. God is showing forth his his glory in creation. And then in verse 15, again, the arm raised on high, the one who's going to sin and do it violently, well, ah, they're frustrated because the sun is up. Oh, good grief, we'll have to try it again another day. Well, God does that. He puts a limit on sin just by the rising of the sun. Well, these are the three. Remember I mentioned that there are three sets of three here in chapter 38. The majestic structure of the physical world is the first set of threes. The foundation of the earth, the boundaries of the sea, the rising of the sun. The second of the three sets of three here is the extreme scope of the physical world. The, the extreme scope. This, the immense uh, 
depths here to start with, the, the horizons of heaven and so forth we'll look at. So in verse 16, he says, Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of the, of the shadow of death? Have you carefully considered the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. We're talking about the depths of the natural sea. He's saying, look, have you ever gone down the estimation of, and, and we even saw this in relation to the great flood, Genesis uh, 6 and 7 especially, talks about when God opened the the gates, the floodgates, the, 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 just all the water came out, right? He, he said, wait a minute, where are those springs? Job, you know all these things. You've been down there, right? No, no, sir. I've not been down to the bottom of the ocean, but God has. He knows where these springs are and he entered into them. He put the water down there to begin with. Have you entered into the springs of the sea? Have you walked in the recesses of the deep? The great depths, the, even the, the shallow depths. I mean, we, in our different scuba equipment and so forth, we can get down a good depth, a fair depth and so forth. Have you ever been down to the very bottom and walked around there, kind of explored? See, well, hey, what's going on down here? First of all, you can't see anything. First of all, you'd be dead. I guess that starts, just, you, yeah, you can't do that. But God has done that. Have, because the ancients had the estimation, we'll look at this in another text here, that at the depths of the ocean, that's where the gates, as God describes it, the gates of death. That's where those are. The gates of the shadow of death, verse 17. The idea is that at the bottom of the seas is the gate, not the, the, the going in and out kind of gate, but the going in and you never come out again gate except of the resurrection, that is for the dead souls to go down to the bottom of the sea, to enter into the gates of, uh, or into the place of death, or the shadow of death, which is what Job has been pining for. Job's, oh, I just want Sheol, I want to go. To... And God says, do you even know what you're talking about? Have you ever been there? Do you have any clue what you're, what you're saying so profoundly? Have you been there? Have you seen these things? It's a one-way entrance. Uh, Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed a man wants to die, and then comes judgment. Unless there's a resurrection, a physical resurrection from the dead, like Lazarus, we're reading in, in John 11, or other instances of a resurrection, when you die, you're in that place of containment, Sheol, as we would call it, Abraham's bosom. There's some theological development of that idea, Abraham's bosom, and then the, being in the presence of God, Christ. We'll talk about that. The point is that the bottom of the sea the extreme scope of the sea, is that's where death is. That's, that's where you enter into uh, the place where the spirits of, of the dead are living and not, not um, patrolling the earth. It's not like, like in A Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens, and not like on that one night that all the spirits of the deceased go and roam around and do these. No, that's, no they're, they're there. They're locked up. They're, they can't go out and do their own little thing. They are there. And God says, hey, Job, do you know what you're talking about? Have you carefully considered, verse 18, the expanse of the earth, the expanse of this underground, this nether world, this under uh, place? Do you know what you're talking about when you talk about Sheol? And Job would have to say, I don't know, but you do. Verse 19 and following, he talks about from the depths of the sea to the horizons of heaven. Verse 19, where is the way to where the light dwells in darkness. Where is its place? That you may take it to its territory. You may discern the past to its, to its home. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. <laughs> not even, not even. But hey, Job, tell me, where, where, where does light dwell? When it goes down at night, where does it go? 
what's it doing? Does it turn off? Does it kind of go into a, I mean, a big garage kind of thing? And how does it get from over there to over here? How do you, how do you do that, Job? Have you ever in your life come out in the morning? What about darkness? We're talking about light. How about darkness? Again, this contrast between light, which indicates goodness, in other respects, goodness and purity and, and life and beauty and all these things. What about darkness? Evil and, and sadness and, and despair and separation. What about darkness? I mean, both the physical phenomenon, but also the, the metaphysical or spiritual implications of that. Do you know what it is, what this is? Where does the light go? How does the darkness come out? And again, the picture, picking up on that idea of a parent putting a child to bed. This is what God does. He says, okay, light, come on over here. Nope, it's time for light to go down. Darkness, you come out. Okay, dark, darkness, you're done for the day. You go down. And God is the one who manages all this every day around the earth. He's managing this thing. And he says, can you lead it to its territory, lead it to its place? No, you can't do that. And may you discern the paths to its home. You don't know where the darkness lives. You don't know where the light dwells. You don't know anything about this thing. You don't know the horizons of the heaven. You don't know how to do these things, where these things are, even what they are. I mean, we can describe them in our modern parlance and you know, fusion reactions going on in the sun and the moon is this way and the darkness is that. But God does it. I mean, he, he manages the whole thing. He keeps it going until that time when he says enough and there is the end of this. But God is the one who knows the way. He knows where it is. He knows why it is. He knows how it happens. And he says, verse 21, so you're talking like you know everything. Well, tell me. You were born then, right? Wait a minute. When, when was that? When did God made the like, made, make the light? Well, day one, right? Of creation week. But also day four, he made the sun and the moon and all the stars. So he made those things. Was Job born then? Was any man born then? And it's kind of anachronistic to say born because Adam wasn't born. He was fashioned out of dust and Eve from his side. Seth, well, Cain was the first one born and Seth and the others. There was no man on day one or day four of creation. And for God to say, you were born then, right? No, I wasn't born. And even to say you were born, I, there's not like you can do anything about your birthday. And what we say kind of funnily, funnily, uh, happily, uh, comically, there's the word, uh, that the baby doesn't want to come out of the womb yet. Well, the baby has nothing going on to decide this, that, and the other thing. It's when God wants that baby to be born. And the same thing with God, with, with excuse me, with the, the darkness and the light. God says this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and we're going to do this, and you can't do it. Job, you weren't even born, which kind of reminds, I mean, when you're born, you're a full-grown human person, right? No, you're just a little infant. You can't do anything except cry and, and do the other stuff that goes along with, with baby stuff. Remember your place, Job. Remember, you are nothing, but I love you. I want to know you. I want you to know me. That's the, that's the paradox of this whole thing. He's a human, made an image of man, uh, image of Adam, image of God, yes, why does God want a relationship with us anyway? For his own glory, for our good, so we would enjoy him and give praise and honor to him so that other people would worship the Son. That's what he's up about. And so his humbling of Job and us, you were born then, right? And your days are so great. No, not at all. Third of, of the second group here is, do you know the extreme scope of the recesses of weather? Recesses, not like, oh, it's playtime. No. Where does the weather come from? Where does it go? What is it for? Verse uh, 22 here says, Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Have you seen the storehouses of the hail? 
which I have reserved for the day of distress, for the time of distress, for the day of war and battle. Where is the way that the light is divided or the east wind scattered on the earth? So he's talking about these recesses, these extreme locations of, of the weather, the storehouses or the treasure houses of the snow or the treasure houses, same word in that, in the verse 22, treasure houses of the hail. You think, wait a minute, I thought snow and hail were generated in the, in the clouds, right? Well, yes, they are, and God is not somehow, oh, he's not somehow misspeaking, just, just as when he says later, uh, can you tip over the, um, verse 37, can you tip the water jars of the heavens and, and cause rain to fall on the earth? It's not like, oh, in our, you know, telescopic view, oh, that, that's where that water jar is, right? God uses big clay pots up there, and that's how the water, no, he's not, he's not, God knows what he's talking about. And even when he has these storehouses, it's the point that God treasures snow and hail, even to the degree that we treasure gold and silver and precious stuff. He uses snow and hail to accomplish his purposes. And you think, I just wish he'd eliminate snow from his repertoire because I don't like it. And hail just causes damage to my vehicle. Can God just not do that? Well, God uses snow and hail here, he says, in the context of times of distress and days of war and battle. He uses it as a weapon. And you think, boy, wouldn't that be handy? I mean, we have some superhero kind of stories that can make snow and ice and all this, and fire, all this stuff. No, God does it. God uses the normal elements, normal phenomenon of life to accomplish his will, even in the context of destruction, of wrath, of the... Um, time of distress and war and battle. God uses snow as a weapon. Oh, shoot, why didn't we think of that? Because well, we can't do it. We can't generate snow. God does it. And he is the one who is able to, to use hail for his advantage. We think, well, even if we could create snow, how could we make it go there instead of over here? I mean, we can do it somewhat with our military, artiller, or artillery and, and air um, embattlements and so forth. But how about just a little bit of snow? A little bit of hail? God, has, we have seen many times when God uses hail. One of the examples in the time of the Exodus, uh, the, one, of the, one of the plagues that God sent was hail coming down, destroying all the crops, big pieces of hail. And God is able to do it using them as weapons. And then verse 24, I'm not sure exactly what he's talking about here. Where is the way that the light is divided or the east wind scattered on the earth? It, it could be he's talking about light, not just of, of light, but of lightning, of lightning in a storm, because he also talks about the east wind. The east wind is a, is the hot uh, Sirocco wind, the desiccating, it was drying out, hot, just uncomfortable. But God uses it in a time of judgment. He sends the, the storm, the lightning being divided or, or cut or separated, uh, Somehow we're we're getting the image that God is over the the light or the lightning and the wind. He he uses those as part of his whole thing. When we have other military strategy that we use. God uses just natural stuff. That's what he does. Water or lack of water, sun or lack of sun. God uses those things that are so outside of our. We don't think of using those as our tools first. We think of let's get a bullet, let's get a gun, let's get. Uh, some kind of a big art, artillery shell, or let's get, you know, whatever it is. And God uses just these natural phenomena. Have you ever entered into those places? Do you know that I have purposes? I'm reserving snow. I've got the snow set up for the next 
well, until Christ comes. I've got it all figured out. I've got it stored up. I know where it's going to, where it is. I'm not going to have to generate it. I know exactly where it's going to fall and what damage it's going to cause. I know it all. Joe, what about you? Do you know all these things? Um, for sake of time, I'm going to save the best. Well, the last for best, for next, for rest. Anyway, the, the, the third one, which I, I'll just give you a hint, is the precise management of the physical world. That God, he, know, he made all these things, he knows the extent of it, but he managed, he carries it forth so wonderfully, so amazingly. And so many of these things have to do with water. Amazing. God is over all these things. Let me just conclude with a couple of scriptures showing that God is faithful. In Genesis 8, and 20, verse 22, well, he says, While all the days of the earth remain, seed, time, and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. In other words, it kind of did go haywire there for a little bit. The global flood, that was unusual. And the rain for 40 days and 40 nights. And no, I couldn't see anything. Noah said, there's, there's no mountains, no trees, birds. It's gone. And God says, let me just tell you, it's going to go back to the way it was somewhat before the flood. Seed time harvest, we'll have that. Cold and heat, yes, summer, winter, day and night. It's going to go on until I say it's going to stop. There is a time when, as we saw God enclose the sea with doors, there's going to be a time when God says, we don't need that sea anymore. It's accomplished its purposes. It is done. Revelation 21.1, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And you think, why did he focus on that? Why does he say there's no more sea? Well, for one reason, it's because John was on a prison island, Patmos, in the Mediterranean. And he, he was separated by sea, which he could not cross. He was not able to get back over to where he wanted to be. And so it was an object of separation from his, from his people, an object, uh, a tool of uh, isolation, uh, loneliness, and even a judgment from the human authorities. But in a larger perspective, having that sea gone means there's no more chaos, there's no more more evil, more disorder, more destruction. God says, enough with that. The sea has played its part, and if you don't mind by extension, evil has done its part, and now there is no longer any curse. It's all gone. God remove, will, will remove that sea at that time. And by the way, Revelation 20 talks about the sea gave up the dead which were in it. What are we talking about? Well, the place of Sheol, right? The gates of the of death, the gates of the shadow of death. God says, okay, enough. See, you give up those dead people you've been you've been uh, um, harboring all this time. And death and Hades also give up the dead that are in them. And then God himself judges uh, righteously for his own glory. We think, wow, this is great authority that God has. God, Yahweh, God the Father. Yes. Remember how Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so what does he say? Go and exercise my authority. You command the light to come up in the morning. And you go out and, and say, okay, time for the sun to go down. You are the one who's, who's going to stand at the sea and say, stop right here. No. What should we do as a result of Jesus having all authority? Well, just what he said. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. What is a disciple? One who loves God. One who, as Keith Green said many years ago, just bananas for Jesus. Remember that? 1980. Uh, he, you weren't all there. Uh, he just celebrates, just wanting to love God's word, love his people, celebrate God, glorify God. Jesus has all authority and he says, I'm commanding you, go and make other people who love me, love my father, 
just as much as you do. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus says, the great comfort we have is that God is over all things. We don't have to be forsaken. We don't have to think of ourselves as as despairing of life. We can put our confidence in God, fear Him, turn to Him. We don't have to have it all figured out. We are not guaranteed a, a, a pleasant life in this life. It's going to be hard. Paul says, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, it'll go fine for them. It'll be fine, right? You will be persecuted. You're going to have a hard time. Some of you may die at the hand of other people because of your devotion to Christ. But hey, is it worth it? Job, was it worth it for you to lose all these things so you could know me better? Yes, Lord, thank you. And Job lived on 140 years rejoicing and knowing God better and teaching his his children and his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren to the fourth generation for 140 years after this because God was so kind to him. God is kind to each one of us. Our Father in heaven, you're so good, so gracious. You are so great over all things, from the heights of the heavens to the depths of the sea and everything in between and beyond, just every possible thing. You are God most high. Please help us to bow down before you, to worship you. How practical is this, to have a better understanding of Christ, a better understanding of God the Father, a better understanding of the Holy Spirit, hovering over the surface of the of the deep there in Genesis 1. The triune God had active in creation, active in the maintenance of creation, active in the ordering of all things. And so we can, I mean, if you can direct the stars and the sun and the moon, we know that you can manage our lives. There's nothing so great in our lives as, as the movement of the sun and the ordering of hail and snow. And that you are faithful, you are powerful over our affairs of life, our just you know, need for this, that, and the other thing. You know, you know we're but dust. And yet you love us. You've set your affection on us through Christ. We pray that each soul here would be rightly related to you through Christ, recognizing you are the great God. You are the deliverer, our only refuge, our only strength, and that we would then grow as a result of our salvation, knowing that you can forgive and you do forgive sins, those who call upon you. We pray that that would be the claim of each one here and that you would save souls for your own glory. We are grateful that you have given us each other. Please help us to honor and glorify you and be thankful. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.